pretty active there and I'm also on Facebook. So uh, hit me up either one of those places. Uh, I'd love to touch base with you. All right, thank you. So, you know, I'm just gonna throw a little joke in. So judging by how things are done federally, so since you're in to finish um, um, spe uh, Speaker Kotex term, wouldn't you be the speaker as well? That's not exactly how it works. And with well, the but, but, but can we say that that's how it works? <laughs> yeah, it works. I'm definitely not going to be speaker, being a, being a freshman <laughs> legislator. The speaker I now is it. actually Dan Rayfield, and I believe there will be another, an, in all likelihood, he will be this the speaker for as long as he wants to be, but I do believe there will be another vote in 2023 on on Speaker of the House for the for that biennium. Um, and the way that that works is it's really a majority vote in the House of Representatives. Whoever gets the most votes becomes the Speaker of the House, and those votes are typically somewhat along party lines. So, if the majority are Democrats in the House, then the Speaker is going to be a Democrat, and, and when the majority are Republicans and which has been a while, uh, the speaker will generally be a Republican. I'm hoping, I'm praying, I'm gonna do the legwork to ensure that that Democrats, pro-union pro Democrats, pro-labor Democrats, pro-racial and health equity Democrats yeah. win in November uh, because we cannot afford to let these Trump Republicans take our legislature, people who want to ban CRT, which we know is nothing but code for teaching about the history of this country and the contributions of, of black and brown people to the uh, United States of America, um, along with wanting to ban, you know, L talking about LGBTQ plus folks and just not wanting to see color. And I'm a big believer that that we all need to see color because I need for you to see me. So like right, I said, right. I'm going to be working hard this summer and fall to ensure that we've got We've got Democrats who are fighting for the right right thing in Salem in 2023. Our announcements, despite the withdrawdown of the COVID pandemic, we would like to remind our listeners that the fight against COVID-19 is an ongoing one, one in which we must remain diligent. The Oregon chapter of the Coalition of Black Trade Union, we meet the second Tuesday of every month at 6 p.m. We extend an invitation to our listeners to join our chapter as we celebrate CBTU International Nationwide 50th anniversary this year. Access our line membership via cbtu.org. Since the coronavirus, we have suspended face-to-face -face meetings and are utilizing Google Meets to conduct our meetings. On behalf of the Oregon Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, I would like to sincerely thank our friend and brother, Travis Nelson, representative to Oregon's 44th House District. Thank you for joining us on our show, and brother, we will be watching you, and we'll see you soon. Our email address is ORCBTU10, and that's the letter 1010. Baby, you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel 
see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh Lord, please don't let me be Welcome to Prison Pipeline, airing from the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm your host, Adam Carpinelli. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective, the criminal justice system addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. Today, we're here with Cameron Call and Michelle Quick from Eviction Representation for All. How are y'all doing? Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for being on and thanks for supporting some very important work that you're all doing and and uh, also helping us to circle around the concept of how mass incarceration, of course, affects everything and, and how housing is so intertwined with that and how those struggles affect poor and working class people. So can you tell us how y'all got involved with this work? And there's definitely some timely information that we're going to hear about tonight. So um, uh, people should be listening. Sure, I can go ahead and start. So yeah, hi, I'm Cameron Call. I am one of the organizers on the Eviction Representation for All campaign. That's a ballot measure campaign here in Multnomah County where we're trying to ensure that everybody in eviction court, everybody who gets evicted has access to legal counsel in those court proceedings. Um, So I got involved with tenant uh, organizing right as COVID started. I was living in a a different apartment than I'm living in now, but it was right during April when uh, everything really just started to shut down in 2020. My property management company sent everybody in this building a letter that said, hey, you know, we're really sorry that the economy is kind of going up in flames and people are getting laid off. But just so you know, rent's still due. And uh, it's really important that you guys don't accrue rent debt so we're going to let you pay it with your credit card and by the way if you got laid off uh, fred meyer and amazon are hiring and here are some links so uh, a bunch of us at the building didn't take too kindly to that so we uh, organized a tenant association called north portland tenants collective and ever since i have been sort of floating around the housing advocacy world here in portland and that's how I also met Michelle, who can I kind of carry on this story with uh, with Don't Evict Portland, which is another great group that is part of the ERA campaign. Um, so, yeah, I'm Michelle Quick, also an organizer with Eviction Representation for All, but I'm also a member of Don't Evict Portland. Um, I got into 
housing justice and um, like tenant rights work actually when I was living in LA before Portland and got involved a little bit with the LA Tenants Union, um, just doing work with tenants there and also some work um, like with houseless rights. So I moved to Portland um, kind of around the same time Cam started organizing in May 2020. And my partner also does housing work and was kind of like looking with, you know, around at what was happening with um, all the, the COVID emergency and yeah, rent obviously being an issue. And basically them and a bunch of comrades were sort of like, why are people still getting evicted when there's an eviction moratorium happening um, during COVID? So they started watching eviction court every day and sort of tracking like, how landlords were still able to evict people during the moratorium, kind of what like loopholes they were using um, and also trying to connect tenants with resources and explain in plain language, like what some of the protections were because it was really hard to find sort of like, you know, in plain language, like recaps of what the protections were and how people could access them. Um, So it started as basically, yeah, like a tenant support group and a court watch group, which we still do today um, and don't evict. Um, But we've shifted a little more to, yeah, helping tenants organize and just, yeah, sharing resources like tenants helping tenants kind of thing. Um, And that's how uh, when don't evict got involved with eviction representation for all, which is a coalition of groups it sort of all came together and we're trying to figure out like, you know, what can we do to, to help stop evictions and yeah, protect tenants. And we sort of all came together, this, this big group and started to talk about these things, I guess about like a year and a half ago. And it sort of started with talking about and looking at what other cities had done to protect renters. Right to counsel is a pretty well-known concept that's been enacted Um, Yeah, all over the country at city level, state level, county level. Um, And so eviction representation for all is sort of our version of a right to counsel program for eviction court. Can you tell us how how that works when you talk about this right to counsel and for people who might not even be familiar with with that concept and that that is definitely a thing and it has been making a lot of progress over time. Yeah, I can take this one. The really basic idea is that uh, people deserve legal counsel in all courts and not just criminal courts. So listeners to this program, I'm sure are fully aware of, you know, the public defender system. So if you are in criminal court, if you cannot afford a lawyer, one is appointed to you. uh, And that right does not exist in civil court or yeah, well, it doesn't exist in civil court, which includes uh, eviction court, family court and Uh, some other things as well. And the philosophy behind it is really the same as it is in criminal court is that, you know, when your rights are at stake in the way that they certainly can be in any kind of court system, it really just makes sense for folks to have a lawyer. And so right now you only get a lawyer in civil court if you can afford one. And so the people who kind of need that advocacy the most do not really have any meaningful access to it, which is where campaigns like ERA come in and where the right to counsel movement more broadly is trying to step in, is trying to force the state to provide that service to the people who need it. Because 
the way things are right now, people really are getting their rights violated. There's just really wild stuff that happens in eviction court specifically. And that happens because in the vast majority of cases, only one side has a lawyer and that's the landlord. And so it's kind of goes without saying that if that is the case, if it is that one sided and you basically have a trained professional arguing against a normal person who has no reason to know how to navigate the court system, that person loses. And it's just kind of, it becomes yet another way for um, essentially for rich people to uh, infringe on the rights of tenants and, you know, poor people more broadly. Can you give us a little more background on where that comes from as far as maybe the, the history of their trajectory on how it's kind of behaved in different states or with different attitudes towards it? Sure. So the first place in the United States that guaranteed tenants a right to counsel is New York City. Um, and it comes back to the things that I was just saying about how difficult it is for, you know, your normal everyday working person to navigate the court. Um, and so that came out of you know, grassroots tenant organizing in New York. People were losing their homes when they shouldn't have been. People were, you know, even really basic things were not communicated to people in a meaningful way, like which courtroom to show up to or which courthouse they needed to be at. And these things would cascade and cause people to lose their homes, which is the exact same thing we see, by the way, in Multnomah County and in pretty much every jurisdiction where we talk about this. Um, and so that was... Uh, a little less than 10 years ago, I want to say, in New York City is when this first happened. Um, and since then, a lot of major cities and even smaller cities and some uh, counties and states have enacted right to counsel programs. Uh, notably, Boulder, Colorado was one that's at least personally is like I know someone in Boulder who helped make that happen, which is how I first heard about the right to counsel movement as a whole. Uh, Seattle recently had uh, some activity with right to counsel. Uh, I know Detroit is one of the bigger cities that has recently passed it. Kansas City as well. San Francisco has a version. So it really is something we're seeing more and more of across the country. Yeah. And maybe I can jump in. One of the things this was even happened before I got involved in um, going to the era meetings. But one thing that I think is great is we've tried to really learn from all these other right to counsel programs across the country. So we like attended conventions like that the New York City Right to Counsel organizers host to educate others. We had folks from from Boulder um, and other cities come and talk to our group to learn about, you know, how they were able to like get it passed, whether that was through like working with um, politicians or doing a ballot measure like we are. All the different ways that it can not only get passed, but also like the structures of how it's funded and the parameters of who it covers. Um, one thing that was really important to us, several of these um, right to counsel measures are like, there's an income bracket or like a means testing, what it's called that like you have to, only people under a certain income level would be covered. And it was really important to our group to not have it be means tested, which is why we have the name um, eviction representation for all because it covers all tenants. Because even if someone qualifies, you know, has the like right income level, there's still barriers for qualifying. You have forms to fill out, you know, certain things to to prove that you're el to be eligible for it. So we really wanted it to be completely inclusive so that there weren't barriers um, for access. And that's also one reason we chose to do a ballot measure. We've seen some programs where 
you know, they put them through a city council or some type of like a uh, representative and it often gets watered down or it's based on like the funding will be based on the city budget and it's kind of up for debate every year. So we really wanted to put the work into this so that it passes exactly as we intended. So um, we're doing a citizen's ballot measure. Um, so right now we're collecting signatures to get it on the ballot. Um, and we're also including a funding mechanism. So it will be paid for by um, a point zero point seven five percentage increase to capital gains, which are essentially the the profit made from the sale of stocks, property, artwork, anything like that. So it will really only affect the top earners of Multnomah County and won't be something that can be passed directly onto renters. Can you talk a little bit about the development of, of the measure and how this came about? Yeah, like Michelle said earlier, it's been about a year and a half since we started doing this. Um, a big part of how we decided that this was, you know, one of the the most pressing things that we could do about housing, it comes from the court watch work that Donavict has been doing. Um, like I was saying, anytime you observe eviction court, you see people losing their homes for these totally bogus reasons, and they would absolutely not be losing them had they had, you know, zealous legal defense on their side. So that kind of that ongoing court watch work combined with the fact that specifically in, you know, Colorado, like I said, is how I learned about this, but in the West, especially uh, right to counsel movement was sort of this rising tide. Uh, we realized that was something doable here because in in several of these, you know, they use the same type of initiative process that we are doing, which is a great way for normal people to actually get stuff on the ballot. Otherwise, you know, you have to put it through. In this case, we would have had to go through the county commission, but, you know, the county commissioners or city council or the state legislature or what have you, you know, you would essentially need to go through establishment political uh, avenues, which is a way we've seen it's a way we've seen right to counsel measures get essentially gutted or, you know, they're, they're made totally toothless because they need to be palatable to elected officials, which is really not what we wanted to do. So that's how we decided on the uh, citizens ballot initiative strategy. So there were a few folks in the very, that have been around, you know, pretty much since the beginning as coalition partners for this. Uh, like I said, the North Portland Tenants Collective at the time is a big one. Donavict is a big one. Portland DSA has been involved. Uh, Sisters of the Road and Stop the Sweeps have also been involved uh, early on as well. And so that was the big one was like, okay, who do we have in the city that's interested in this and what is actually something that's achievable? And we realized, you know, it, it's totally doable to get an uh, initiative like this passed. And a big reason we went with that strategy too is that a lot of the folks who worked on the universal preschool mess uh, initiative that passed in 2020, they are also working on this as well. And so coming off that victory, we were like, you know, we've done it before. We could probably do it again. So yeah, we went with that because we really thought, you know, going directly to the people with this stuff is our best bet because there is a really big appetite for actual manageable solutions to all of the issues we see around housing. And this is one that we really wanted to pursue. 
For folks just tuning in, you're listening to Prison Pipeline, airing from the studios of KBO Portland. And we're here with Cameron Call and Michelle Quick from Eviction Representation for All, talking about this very important measure that affects um, everyone. And can you talk more about the measure where people can find it? And how does this kind of affect formerly incarcerated persons and or undocumented folk um, within this whole legal mess? Sure. So people can find us at our website, which is eratenants.org. Um, you can find information there all about policy, where we're at with the campaign, which right now we're gathering signatures to get on the ballot. But by the time this airs, the deadline will be right upon us. Um, so hopefully we'll be celebrating, but we may still be gathering signatures at that time. But yeah, so all the information can be found on our website. Housing issues like this really affect so many different groups. I think eviction is very similar to any sort of like justice system um, mechanism where once you're kind of in it, it's really hard to get out of it. So, you know, let's say you have an eviction, a, a ruling of an eviction after you go to to trial for an eviction, you not only have to, you know, you have a move out date when you have to leave your home, you also have a, a bill. So in um, um, Oregon, there's a prevailing party fee where the losing party is responsible for paying the winning party's um, court fees and to cover their cost for their lawyer, which is um, really, you know, just like salt in the wound. So you're left without your current housing, you have this bill and also now you have an official eviction on your record. So getting um, housing after that is almost impossible. People don't want to rent to someone who who has a, an outstanding eviction. Um, so it's one of those things where you can get buried really quickly and obviously can be, you know, a turning point in someone's life where they become houseless, um, which can lead them, you know, to be further put into the system, the justice system. But also I think one reason we really wanted to make this universal is because there are barriers for, for people to get resources, right? So yeah, if you have a criminal record and you don't have like proof of employment or income, if, um, you know, you're an undocumented immigrant and you don't want to be filling out, you know, forms with the state, like all of these things can be barriers to people who are already in the system or, or have reason to be obviously afraid of the justice system. That's a big thing we see too, is that um, folks who are already, you know, marginalized in some way, if they get an eviction notice, which like the notice that is posted on your door or mailed to you is not actually telling you that you're evicted. It just tells you that you're um, essentially in jeopardy um, of being evicted. But a lot of people don't understand that. So if you're already in a vulnerable place, um, yeah, like, you know, you're um, on probation or yeah, you're a non-citizen or you just like, you know, are afraid of your landlord, which a lot of people are. People often move out themselves and don't understand that basically that's just a first warning and they don't actually get an eviction until they're summoned to court and go through a hearing and potentially a trial depending on the outcome of the hearing. So I think a lot of people who, you know, may already be in the system are just like, they don't feel like they have any agency, you know, like why would they win in an eviction case? So I think having no barriers, we would require it that when you get that notice, there's information on there about the fact that you would get a free lawyer without any qualifying factors um, and that there are resources to help you. So we're hoping to not only yeah, make this accessible to everyone, but also have the information be much more transparent because like eviction and, and housing issues are really complex and confusing, even for people who, you know, have a, a grasp of 
of understanding of like what their rights are. But for people who don't, and especially people who are already marginalized, um, it can be even even tougher. So I hope that kind of ties it in for you. Sure, and legal support is also expensive and hard to get and hard to understand, like you said, just confusing and complex. And can you talk about what that legal support kind of looks like and, and kind of how that works, like the nuts and bolts of it? And, you know, if there's been any successful examples of, of cases that, that have won and made, made other gains. Yeah. So I think another thing we're really proud of is um, how the, the legal representation um, would be available to tenants. So um, we understand that a lot of people have distrust for the system, like maybe a state appointed um, attorney, you know, might not like be something that they feel really comfortable accessing. So the way that that we are setting this up is that the tax would fund the the setup and operation of a tenant resource office. And that resource office would actually be where the like the notices for eviction that landlords file, they would have to be filed with that office. So the office would know, have a record of of who's getting these notices and be able to do active outreach to them. Um, and then what they would do is um, fund five or more, so at least five community groups or nonprofits who would actually hire and, and maintain the lawyers. So this would be open to community groups that are already working with, with certain communities. So this could be culturally specific, language specific. You know, we're really excited about the fact that people could like have access to these lawyers like through groups that they already have a, a relationship with. Um, whether it's an LGBTQ rights community center, um, whether it's specifically for African-Americans or immigrants, like somewhere that people would feel, you know, safe accessing the space. Um, so that was really important to us that this isn't kind of like another bureaucratic thing people have to go through, that it can actually be incorporated um, into the community. Let's um, make sure that people are getting the directional here to look at the right links and, and also with their able to make any other contributions to, um, you know, working on this project or getting involved or what have you. Can you mention that stuff again? Yeah, definitely. So our website is eratenants.org. The best way you can get involved is if you are a registered voter in Multnomah County, we need your signature to get on the ballot. That's the way that these uh, initiative campaigns work. We've got to get you know, a certain number of signatures to qualify to be listed on the ballot where people will eventually vote to approve it. So on our website, we've got all kinds of good info about how the policy works. We've got a shop where you can get, buy merch. We've got news and updates. We've got a calendar of all our upcoming events. Another really, really important way you can contribute to the campaign is you can actually volunteer to gather signatures. So in the same way, if you are a voter in Multnomah County, we have ways for you to get uh, printed materials from us and then go out to your community and get signatures. And that's really important because we're a grassroots campaign and it's almost entirely volunteer based. And this is the only way that, you know, small campaigns of uh, normal people win anything because we don't have huge donations coming in like, you know, statewide or, you know, official uh, political parties do. So it's, yeah, the volunteer effort is crucial and kind of the only way that we get this over the line. 
And then of course you can always give us money. If you have any to spare, we are happy to get it. Uh, so that's the same thing. ERAtenants.org slash donate will take you to our donation page. And so if you want to throw us a couple bucks, that's great to do as well. Uh, and right now, pretty much all the money we get is going to pay whatever signature gatherers we can to help us you know, get as many signatures as we can, as fast as we can. And I'll elaborate on that process just a little bit because I think it's important to understand how it works. We have a deadline of July 18th, and that is the last day that we can submit our collected signatures to get on the ballot for this coming November. So that's our goal is we want to be able to, you know, hit that number that the county gave us by July 18th to get on the ballot as early as possible. It is also, I think, important, though, to say if we don't hit that, the way things are going, we will very easily make the May of 2023 ballot. We're, we definitely have enough signatures to do that one, no problem whatsoever, but we're just trying to do it faster because, you know, the, the housing situation is really dire. You know, I think anyone who lives in Multnomah County or really anywhere in this country knows that. So, you know, the faster this stuff happens, the better. So yeah, once again, eratenants.org is where you'll find all of this stuff. And there's some great materials as well that discuss how evictions are so expensive themselves um, in different um, different ways that different people to the economy, uh, to the system at large. Can we just talk about that a little bit before we close out? Sure. Yeah, it's it's almost somewhat ironic to think about, especially if you're in a situation where you can't afford your housing, um, then you have to jump through these hoops um, of going to eviction court, which is even additional cost. So we've talked about that, obviously paying for your own legal representation is costly and often just not within reach for most folks. But, um, you know, a lot of times when you um, have a court summons, like it has the date and time on it, there's not really something you can do to like choose when you want to go. So most people have to miss work to be able to um, to attend. Um, there are some remote options now for attending court, but e even so, like there's not really a set time. You have to be available the whole time. But so people often have to pay, yeah, for whatever missed work, um, transportation to get to the court, potentially childcare, court fees to file, you know, a response or to especially if they go to trial to file any evidence. And, and oftentimes, like you're not just going to court once. So there might be an appearance, which maybe you show up to, and for some reason it can get um, rescheduled even when you're there. Um, so you may have to go one or two times and then for a trial, you'd have to go again. So this, you know, could be like going to court multiple times and having to, you know, loss of work, childcare, transportation, et cetera. Um, and that's for the individual, but I can just touch on briefly, like evictions are costly to to the county as well for downstream services. Um, you know, if someone does um, become evicted and loses access to housing, you know, then there's costs for, you know, emergency shelters, um, foster care potentially, depending on the situation, um, medical bills. So it's also really costly to the county. And this program would be a much less expensive way um, for the county to address this issue than all the downstream costs that um, eviction can lead to. And I'll just say something really quick about how we're funding it. So we're using a capital gains tax to provide the funds to administer this program. And when we're talking about a capital gains tax, we're talking not only about the top 1% of uh, income earners in Oregon, we're talking about the top 0.1% is all, just under half of all of the capital gains 
income that's made in Oregon. So it's really the people who can afford to pay for this most are paying for it. And it's specifically designed not to increase the tax burden on poor and working people. And so it ultimately saves everybody a lot of money and it only, and it takes you know less than 1% of this type of income that is not earned in the traditional sense. It's not wages that you get for showing up to work. This is stuff that you get for selling stocks, selling real estate, or you know any kind of assets. And it only even taxes the profit that you make on that. So it's whatever you made above that sticker price you paid for it, that's what's taxed.